I'm Rabbi Nicole Guzik. And I'm Rabbi Erez Sherman. And And this this is Sinai Sinai Temple Torah Torah Talk, a channel for your daily dose of drash, abyssal Torah, from our home to yours. Catch up with the latest rabbi sermons, Torah classes, rabbinic insights, and more. Follow us now so you don't miss a word. Infusing Torah in our daily lives. You brought me a flower. And the coffee is because I was at the so. Um, sure. Sugihara, yes. Sugihara, yeah. and is it Roy? Yeah. Thank you. I'm just waiting for it to hit 8.30, which it should, in like 30 seconds. Um, <clears throat> and then we'll start. Okay, good morning. Welcome to Thursday Morning Torah. This morning, um, we're going to do, because we only have three classes left, this one included, uh, this and two more, we're going to do the book of of Numbers of Bamidbar, um, because we're starting it this week. And rather than focus on just one Parsha, I want to give a sort of overview of the book. and uh, talk a little bit about what it says about the Torah in general. <clears throat> so there, won't, there will be, in a minute, there'll be some specific verses to look up, but let me start with just a general overview. Um, the first, like, 10, 11 chapters of the book are all about preparations for the march into the wilderness. Because if you remember in Exodus, they only go, in theory, 40 days, although 40 doesn't necessarily mean exactly 40. Um, And they go to the mountain of Sinai, but then they wander for another 39 years. So at the beginning of, of Bamidbar, of the Book of Numbers, it gives all the clans and how they're arranged and how they're going to go through the wilderness and so on. So it's preparation for the march through the wilderness. Um, And remember, by the way, when you get to Deuteronomy, to the next book, they're already at Transjordan. They're right, Moses is giving them the final speech before they go into the land. So really, Numbers is the book in which they wander. Leviticus is all about the Levitical rules. Numbers, at the beginning of it, they're 
beginning to wander and at the end of it, they're done wandering. Um, so in what does their wandering consist? I hear you ask. First, they prepare for wandering. And then the last 11 chapters are all about what they do when they occupy the promised land. It has a census. It talks about the succession to Moses, about the calendar, about who gets what property where when they get into the land. Um, it's about who supervises the division of the land, how you have to treat the people in the land, which is not always that kindly, and that's the end of it. And the question, the interesting question is, what's between the preparation of the land, the, the preparation for the wandering, and the preparation for the land? In other words, what is the content of the actual wandering? And the answer, which may or may not surprise you, is almost entirely rebellion. It's the Israelites being upset, complaining. Um, it's Korach, remember the rebellion against Korach. It's Baal Peor, if you remember Pinchas, because they're consorting with Moabites and they're not supposed to, and over and over and over again. And what is particularly interesting and here, if you, want, if you want to look at the verses, you can. I will read them out. But what is particularly interesting is that there are parallels. There are numerous ones. I'm just going to give you one of them, uh, one, one series of them. There are parallels with the rebellions that they had back in Exodus and the rebellions that they have now in Numbers. So, for example, in Exodus 14, they complain that the Egyptians are about to kill them before God opens the sea. This is 14.10. I, this way you can have the verses on the, on the YouTube. That way if you ever want to take a look, you can go back and have the actual verses. So that corresponds to Numbers 11.1, 1, where the people grumble against God at Taverah and fire punishes them. Then you have Numbers 14. Uh, or rather Exodus 15, people grumble, grumble at Elim about bitter water, and Moses cures the water. And then Numbers 11, people grumble about having no meat, and God sends quail, but also a plague. And then Moses and, Miri, and Aaron rebel against Moses. This is in Numbers. God gives Miriam leprosy. Um, People reach, rebel at the desert, stay. God extends the time to 40 years. That all happens in, in Bamidbar. Korach, Datan, and Abiram rebel against Moses. God consumes them in fire. Um, <clears throat> people grumble about no food in the desert in Exodus and no water in Exodus. That's Exodus 16.3 and 17.2. And in Numbers 20, people grumble about the lack of water and Moses strikes the rock. And in Numbers 21, people grumble about food, and God sends them fiery serpents. So there, the other conclusion that you can draw from this is what is the difference between Exodus and Numbers? In Exodus, they haven't gotten the Torah yet. In Numbers, they already have the Torah. It seems to make no difference. That's what you learn from this, right? They're unhappy before they get the Torah, and they're unhappy after they get the Torah. They rebel both before and after. Um, and it's an amazing thing if you think about it, however you think the Torah is created, whether it's entirely divine, whether it's entirely human, whether it's some collaboration of the two, 
It's an amazing thing that the sacred book of the Jewish people shows the Jewish people misbehaving again and again and again and again and again. Not like once or twice. We generally think, okay, they were bad at the golden calf. But when you read through the entire Torah, it's constant. And then, by the way, when you get into the land, there's always idolatry. And the reason we have a prophetic tradition is because the prophets are always yelling at them. And, and one of the things that always I, I either find heartening or amusing is when people talk about how could the Jewish people be fighting with themselves? I want to say, like, how could they not? They never weren't. Um, I mean, just look in the Bible. They were from the beginning. And we have this very, hum I mean, the past sort of gets homogenous, you know? Um, it's just like you don't have a good memory of pains that you had in the past. Uh, I was just reading a book, fascinating book. Um, there was a, a moral philosopher named Derek Parfit, and uh, he, uh, he was probably, probably the most important moral philosopher of the 20th century. Um, he actually, I think, died around 2011. He lived in Oxford, um, and he wasn't that well-known outside of philosophical circles, but he was extraordinarily well-known inside philosophical circles. Really interesting and somewhat peculiar guy, but nonetheless. So someone just wrote a biography about him. Uh, and, uh, and, and in addition to his life, he talks about his philosophy. And Parfit, like a lot of good philosophers, he would do thought experiments to try to show um, philosophical points. And one of his many thought experiments was, if I said to you, you will have an operation that will give you 10 hours of agony, but afterwards you won't remember it, or one hour of agony, but it will be in the future, would you now wish I had the 10 hours of agony yesterday, but I don't remember it, or the one hour of agony tomorrow? And almost everybody, says Parfit, would pick the 10 hours of agony yesterday that they don't remember because we don't treat our past selves with the same consideration that we treat our future selves because the anticipation of pain is much worse than having had the experience of pain. Right? Or to put it another way, this is why people have multiple children, right? Because the past pain does not, right? It's the future pain. So here, too, um, it's like we think that the Jewish people in the past were fine because the past pain we do not take as seriously as the fact that there's present, you know, unrest. But this is the way our people has always been and still are, and the Book of Numbers demonstrates it at least as eloquently as, as any other document in Jewish history. That's one of the things that is both painful to, to, to come to terms with, but is somewhat inevitable to come to terms with, is like when people say, you know, about, about disagreements in Israel now, they have this very sort of halcyon view of what Israel was in the past, forgetting that the vast majority of Jews were not Zionists at the beginning, thought the Zionists were terrible, and then even among the Zionists, 
there were fights um, and serious ones. Um, and so the, same, if, the, the legacy of Bamidbar um, continues. And, and, what, and what the Torah enables, which wasn't true before the Torah, is for us to be able to identify behavior and say, you know this behavior is wrong. You're doing it, but you know it's wrong. Whereas before the Torah, people could have the excuse of, we didn't know that we weren't allowed to do this um, unless there was an explicit uh, source that says so. So that's, that's the overall picture of, uh, of Bamidbar. And now I just want to highlight one or two specific uh, events, and then we'll open it up for questions and comments. Um, so first of all, the, not the only, but the major rebellion in, in, um, in the book is Korach. And it's a rebellion against the leadership of Israel, which reminds you also that um, leadership is always contentious and is always subject to rebellion. And that if Moses, who after all has demonstrated repeatedly his close connection to God, if Moses is subject to a rebellion, um, then anyone could be, especially because we know at least part of the rebellion against Moses is clearly false. Because Korach basically accuses Moses of arrogance. You take too much upon yourself. And the only thing that the Torah says about Moses in terms of his character is what? Moses was the most humble man who ever lived. So it's like you can attack Moses for a lot of things, but for being arrogant is the one trait that we know is not true, and yet that does not prevent Karach from being successful because he, got, he was somewhat successful. He got a lot of people around him attacking Moses, even for the one thing that you would think you couldn't attack Moses on. Um, so I, I guess what I'm saying is if you take all this together, we should not be surprised at the potential for misbehavior of human beings in almost any setting, in almost any way. Um, and when we are, it's because we haven't taken the past seriously enough. We haven't listened to the fact that the past tells us over and over again, this is how people are. Um, and, uh, and then when we come, to the end of Bamidbar, uh, which are the last few verses. So then we are told how people are supposed to divide up the land once they go into the land. And then we discover that after all this wandering, there are people who don't want to go into the land, right? Um, there are people who come to Moses and, and say, we want to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Um, and this too, is uh, which goes on to the next book. This too reminds us that even those goals that everybody seems to want and to work for, the truth is not everybody wants and works for. Um, and this is just a reality of human nature that the only thing that seems to unify the Jewish people, um, this will not surprise you, uh, 
is a common enemy. When they're all fighting Amalek, they all seem unified. But as soon as Amalek recedes, they're not uh, unified. And, and in, in modern Israel, one of the many diagnoses of what's going on there is that Israel basically has breathing room. And, and when you have breathing room and you no longer feel like imminently under threat, then internal divisions start to manifest themselves. And, and by the way, if you see internal divisions so um, clearly in the history of the United States, the United States almost never had a credible external threat. Because, you know, as I always say, Canada, Mexico, ocean, ocean. You know, I mean, the Pacific Ocean rarely threatened us, um, and the Atlantic was very weak. So because we didn't have, on our border, we didn't have a power that threatened us, um, it was always harder for America to be unified than it would be for other nations who have an external enemy that they think of as a real threat. Um, so I guess what we learn from the Torah is that human nature does not change uh, and it has to be managed. Yet, having said that, to, to end on a, on a positive note, Moses gets them through the desert and he gets them there intact and they do take the land and they do settle the land and they do create a state, all of that. It's just never easy and it's never frictionless and it's never without uh, people who have a very hard time doing what it is that, they, uh, that they're supposed to do uh, according to the Torah and according to God. So, with that intro, questions, comments, and I'll look online too. Please. Oh, yeah? So he said Charlton Heston gave a, gave a good uh, portrayal of humility, even though Charlton Heston himself was not known for being humble. Um, that's called acting. Uh, yeah. So um, the, uh, the, I mean, the other thing, of course, about Charlton Heston is that we don't have any physical description of Moses in the... Torah, which is not true of anyone. Like Saul, it says Saul was tall and David was ruddy-cheeked, but it doesn't say anything about Moses. So the idea that Moses was tall and handsome is a very Hollywoodish idea. There's no reason in particular to think that that's true. Um, so, and also, not no. Moses could have looked like Danny DeVito. We have no idea. We have no idea. Um, but. Uh, but that's, I mean, that, that's, uh, you know, in fact, uh, when, when God comes to, uh, to Samuel, Samuel goes off to David's house to anoint the new king. And he sees David's oldest brother, Eliav, and he's tall and handsome, and he goes to anoint him. And God says, no, 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 don't anoint him because I don't see the way you see, because people see what's visible, but God sees into the heart. So that's an explicit, like, don't be deceived by the fact that this guy looks the part, looking the part and being the part are not the same. And I mean, in American history, 
the best example of this is probably Abraham Lincoln, who <coughs> people, sorry, um, who people thought of as ugly, but turned out to be Abraham Lincoln. So, Socrates too, right, was also supposed to be famously unattractive, but turned out to be Socrates. So, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I wonder, I wonder in our age whether such figures could be successful because we're much more, uh, much, much more attuned to uh, public appearances. So the question was uh, about consciousness, that people didn't know they were doing bad before and after. Um, I mean, I would say that it's a, it's a feedback loop. Certain things you know are wrong intuitively, and certain things you have to be trained to know are wrong. So when, when Cain kills Abel, the Torah thinks it's wrong, even though the Torah has not come along yet and said you're not supposed to kill. Some things you know, but some things you have to train people to. Like kids have to be trained, for example, to share. That's not their natural, um, for most kids, that's not their natural. So yeah, I think consciousness is something we have, but can definitely be expanded and grown. And the Torah is the tool that the Jewish tradition uses to do that. Um, we're, are we born with certain ways that our DNA causes us to behave and that is love the most powerful of all? What's that? I'm part of my grammar. Right. Um, so yes, we all have, I mean, we all have certain things in common, but obviously there are things that are different. Um, I would, I mean, you're asking me in certain circumstances and for certain people, love is the most powerful. Not for everyone always. There are certainly clearly instances in which other emotions for people override that and prove to be more powerful than that. So um, if in fact love were at all times and in all places the most powerful, we'd have a very different world. A better world. A better world. I agree. It would be a better world, but it's unfortunate that's not always the case. Yes. Well, yes, aggression is certainly hardwired in our DNA, but not only aggression. So is altruism, so is love, so is... Lo I mean, I think that, that the Jewish tradition gets this right. People have a Yetzirah Tov and a Yetzirah Ra. They have a good inclination and an evil inclination. And that those are intertwined in some ways because, um, you know, there's a story in the Talmud that they, the rabbis caught the evil inclination and they tied it up. And then no one had a child or built a house because the same inclination to aggression is part of ambition, is part of the sex drive can be a good or a bad thing, on and on and on. It's just really hard to untangle 
all the motivations of. So let me go back to the to the to this Derek Parfit that I was talking to you about before. Um, he was extraordinarily single-minded to the extent that even though he was a kind person, he neglected all sorts of people in his life because he was working on philosophy all the time. Um, and, and that was, for, at a certain point, that was almost all he could talk about. And he produced, as a result, great work. But the average person, in quotes, would think, this guy's a nut. Like, why doesn't he, you know, live a normal life? And so it's hard to put one template on human beings and have them fit that and think that that's, you know, all they need to do or need to be. Um, complicated. People are, uh, people are complicated. They're uh, of this twisted thing, nothing can be made straight, as Kant said. Um, okay, I don't see any uh, questions online. This is your chance to ask questions online, if you have any. Um, and if not, do any of you have any more about numbers or, hum or human nature? This is your place to, yes. I think Tolstoy, and I tried to read Okay. okay. We have we have one vote for love overpowering all other emotions. Um, yes. It was lovely. I had a lovely time. I mean, I spoke, and they were very nice. It was really, I enjoyed it. Uh, but other than that, no, I mean, it's the, the, the speech is online, but uh, the, the question was about the visit that I had to the Cavalry Church in Memphis. No, I had a very nice time, and uh, they were extremely welcoming. Um, and, and I spoke about, uh, I think, um, Jacob and Moses, uh, and Joseph, Jacob, Joseph, and Moses. So, but as I said, it's online if you want to see the talk. But other than that, it was just, it was very lovely, um, as it has virtually always been when I've had the opportunity to speak at churches. Um, very welcoming and very nice. And so, uh, yeah. Last, last question. Go ahead. Right. So one, uh, right. There are Christians who uh, whose attachment to Israel and Jerusalem is out of a sense of whether guilt or memory or whatever to to what happened in Europe. Um, I was in Amsterdam before I was in Paris for Elnet, and they have in Amsterdam the same thing they have in Berlin, which are these stumble stones, which is these golden bricks in front of homes 
where you go in front of the house and it says so-and-so lived here, was taken away at such and such a time to Sobibor usually in, in Amsterdam and uh, had been born at such and such a time. Um, and they're all over the city and there is something like deeply ironic about the fact that the biggest crowds in Amsterdam are at the Anne Frank house. And you think to yourself like, <laughs> they're all there now. It reminds you of Dara Horn's book, you know, People Love Dead Jews. Um, so, but, 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 one, but one, of the things that I, one of the things that I will say is that we should not be too like, complacent in our superiority because what we see from the Bible is that human beings are problematic and that it's a constant struggle to make the world better than it is. And it is not easy and it is not automatic um, and it is not guaranteed. So, uh, and that's part of the lesson of the Torah. Otherwise, you wouldn't need a Torah, right? That's the, there's a, I'll end with this midrash. There's a midrash where the angels don't want God to give the Torah to human beings because they know they're going to violate it and they're not going to do what the Torah says. And finally, God throws truth to the ground. In other words, God says, look, I know they're not going to be truthful. I know that. But you don't need the Torah. They need the Torah. And so Moses gets the Torah um, because we're the ones that need it. If we were angels, we wouldn't need it. So the expectation that we're going to be so good is, uh, according to the Torah, a very unrealistic one. So that's not, that's not by the way, an excuse to be not good. <laughs> I just want to say it's just an expectation that uh, that every now and then we'll fall short. All right. God willing, I'll see you next week.